Did we shoot as well? We did meet briefly once. I don't know if you remember this or not. Um, it's a story from back a few years ago in Carlo. Um, but I can get to it a little bit later anyway. But look, I just wanted to welcome you. Thanks very much for, for uh, coming on to the podcast. I'm really glad that you accepted the offer. Um, my, my guest today is Richard Moore. And Richard is the founder of the charity organization Children in Crossfire. And uh, there's a very literal story behind the charity name for that. I, I don't want to give too much away because when I met you, I heard your story um, in person. And I'd love for our listeners to hear it from you as well. Um, so you might start from the, the ground up, Richard, if you would, because I know you grew up in, in Craig and in Derry. Uh, and it wouldn't be the typical childhood that everybody else would have. Yeah, I um, first of all, Anthony, thanks very much for inviting me onto the the podcast here. I'm delighted to be part of it, and uh, I'm more than happy to share my story with you as well. I, um, as you rightly point out, grew up in Derry. I lived in Derry all my life. I was born in 1961, so um, I'm 59 years of age now, and uh, you know I remember Derry and Northern Ireland before the conflict started um, in 19. 19- sort of 69, 68, 69, was the beginnings of the conflict in Northern Ireland, and Derry was at the epicenter of that, you know, the civil rights marches and that sort of thing at the time. Um, but I remember, you know, prior to that, the Craigan where I lived being a lovely, peaceful, pleasant place to live, and, you know, I playing football on the street, watching the Bobby on the beat, you know, the policeman walking up through the area, just you know, like any normal society anywhere. And then what seemed like overnight to me, the Craigan um, seemed to plunge into violence and became like a war zone. And I'm sure it was much more gradual than that, but for me, it seemed like overnight. And outside our front, front door, the adults were digging up the pavements and breaking them up and using the broken pavements to build barricades or to, as message, to throw at the British Army or the police. And there was hijacked cars, buses, lorries all put across the road, set and fire and all that sort of stuff. And then eventually, you know, you saw the thing escalate, you know, the uh, shootings and bombing incidents were a daily occurrence almost. And the Craigan became known as a no-go area. And in January 1972, you had what was sadly a very famous incident in Derry, which is Bloody Sunday, where 13,000 people were shot dead by the British Army in the streets of Derry. And arguably the weeks and months that followed Bloody Sunday were among the most violent period in the history of the Northern Ireland conflict. Conflict, In fact, I think 1972 was probably one of the most violent years. And um, I went to Rosemount Primary School and Rosemount Primary School was on the edge of the Craigan Estate. And it was right beside uh, a police station. And as you can imagine, a police station right beside a no-go area um, was a target for the IRA and a target uh, for rioters. So eventually the British Army were brought in to protect that police station. And you had these, what I would describe as semi-permanent military installations set up there. These army lookout posts or sangers or sandbag huts, whatever you want to call them, and there were basically military huts and the army were inside these huts, you know, keeping watch, you know, through a porthole. So there were lookout posts. And um, one of these army lookout posts faced up into um, my school 
up through the playground of the school. And on the 4th of May, 1972, which is about just three months after Bloody Sunday, I got out of school as normal. And me and my friends were having a race along the bottom of the school football pitch. And I was 10 years of age at the time. And I remember running past this army lookout post on my right-hand side. And, uh, you know, as I got close to it, I was about 10 feet away from it, a British soldier fired a rubber bullet. The rubber bullet hit me in the bridge of the nose. And uh, I lost my right eye. I was permanently blinded, my left eye. So I'm blind now about, whatever it is, 48 years. Um, so I went to the hospital and all that sort of stuff, Anthony, you know, and spent spent um, two weeks in hospital. All during that time, I thought that I couldn't see because of the bandages on my eyes. Uh, I didn't realize that I was blind. And um, it was only about a month after I was shot that my brother Noel, well, I was out home. I got out of the hospital after two weeks, as I say. And all along, I thought there was the bandages that were preventing me from seeing. And my brother Noel, when I was out of hospital, about, as I say, about a month after I was shot, he took me for a walk up and down our back garden. And this particular day, he said to me, Richard, do you know what has happened to you? And I said, yes. I knew I was shot. And he said, do you know what damage was done? And I said, no. And that's when he told me that I would be blind for the rest of my life. And um, to be honest with you, I took up my stride there and then. It really didn't impinge on me at all, really. Until that night when I went to bed. I was in bed on my own. I cried for the one and only time that I remember about blindness. And I cried because I realized for the first time that I was never going to see my mommy and daddy again. And um, I suppose to a 10-year-old boy, that was a big thing. You know, you don't think about all the challenges that life has ahead, like getting a job, your education, or anything like that. I just felt that I was never going to see my mommy and daddy's faces again. And I cried myself to sleep that night. Um, so that was me, really. The next day I woke up and started to get on with my life, really. And, and I suppose I would say that day was the first day of the rest of my life as a blind person. I... Uh, Eventually went back to um, eventually went back to the primary school I was at, then I went on to the, the local secondary school or high school or whatever. I went to university from there, I got my degree in 1983 and married in 1984. I have um, two children, Eve and Enya. Um, I um, done a lot of things after I was shot, learned how to play the guitar, played in bands and things like that. And then I... I um, in fact, I used to play down in Carlow, down in a place called the Seven Oaks down there. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I used to play in the Seven Oaks Sunday night. You never, you, you never went on stage until about quarter past 12. Yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> Good God. I, it used to be, you used to be naggered before you went on stage. <laughs> but uh, so I done all that. And, and then me and my girlfriend, and my wife, now Rita, we set up a folk choir that sang at Mass on a Saturday night. 40 years on, we're still doing that. Well, we're not in at the minute because of COVID, but, um, you know, we, we've done that. And then, you know, I was compensated by the British government for being shot. And we half the money, I bought a house, the other half, I bought a pub, 
two years later, I bought a second pub and then, so by the time I was 20 years of age, I owned two pubs in the centre of Derry and I came out of university and went straight into an office I had above one of the pubs and began to run my own business for about 14 years. Um, I became a director of Derry City Football Club in the mid-90s, um, which was fantastic. I was a fan of Derry City and it was great to be just in the inner workings. Yeah, because if you were to look at um, what you've done with your life as a young man, you know, you'd never think you were reading, you know, all the achievements of someone who was blind. You know, when you say about playing in the bands and, you know, becoming a Derry City football director, owning the two pubs and, you know, playing guitar, everything you've done, you know, you've you still had a very um, a full life, it would seem. Aye, I mean... Looking back on it, you know, it, it does a, was and is a full life, really. And, uh, you know, and I enjoyed everything I did. And I suppose, you know, I'm blind. I know I'm blind, but a blindness never really, I never really felt the blindness was something that could hold me back. You know, I was still a fully functioning human being and, and you know, wanted to just do what I could enjoy doing. Now, you know, I can't pretend that I'm not blind, and uh, so therefore, you know, you had to be at least aware of the choices you were making. You had to be aware of your limitations, but equally, you had to be aware of what your potential was as well. And you know, I would often say it's it's not what you can't do that you focus on. You should focus on what you can do. And I was able to do certain things, and and um, you know that blindness didn't really present a problem. You know, blindness is a funny thing, I think, you know, in the sense that, you know, there's two, I always say there's two broad things about being blind. One is, you know, the the, the physical side of blindness. You know, like I can't just, if you said to me, look, I'm, can I meet you down the town this afternoon in Derry here? I just can't go out and hop on the car and drive down, meet you there. You know, um, so in that regard, blindness presents a physical issue. Um, but then there's the emotional side of blindness, which I think can be the hardest thing to deal with if you don't get a grip on it. And uh, the emotional side of blindness is the things that make you sad or make you happy, you know, um, about not having your eyesight. You know, and there are things that make me sad. Obviously, I must not see my children, for example, and I'll never see my children. But, um, and that's something that I'd be sad about. Even telling you about it now, I feel sad. But, you know, on the other hand, applying my logic, you know, focus on what you can do, not what you can't do, I could allow my whole life to be dominated by the fact that I can't see my children. You know, and lose out on all the other things that I can do with my children. I can take them for a walk, I can watch a movie, I can kick a ball in the garden with them, I've taught them how to ride bicycles, you know, I can have conversations. You know, I can watch a Disney movie, you know, things like that. So, um, so is seeing them everything, it's a big part of it and it's sad, but it's not everything. Yes. I know I've watched um, a documentary um, on yourself recently and it involved you, you were going to America, I think it was Utah maybe, and they were looking into um, an artificial site and things like yeah. that. Did, did, did anything ever come of that or did they ever put anything on the saying that maybe in a certain amount of time that you might get some sight or? 
All right, well, to be honest, I never really fully followed up on it, Anthony. You know, um, I, I, that was part of a BBC documentary and I was delighted to do it and I found it really interesting as well. And the one thing that that trip proved to me at that time, we went to, we went to um, LA there where we met a, a, a university guy who, you know, basically was looking into research of, you know, um, how to link a camera to the brain, and and he was he was looking at it from the point of view of using laser. You know, a CD player, for example, uses laser, and more information. Your computer, my computer, of all laser grades and stuff like that. So, um, laser carries much more information. So this guy in um, in LA was looking at how you could get laser to communicate with the vortex of the brain, which is a part of the brain that manages your eyesight. And, um, you know, because at the end of the day, your eyeball processes what you see sort of thousands of times, thousands of thousands of times, and then your brain processes that again, maybe thousands of millions of times. So if you want some kind of external camera, they operate as effectively as an eyeball then you need to be able to compute a lot of information to the brain. And th- this guy in LA was looking at that side of it. And, and then we went up to Utah, as you mentioned, and um, there they were looking at a similar type way of connecting a camera to the brain. And then eventually in that trip, we went up to um, a guy in Canada who actually had a camera connected to his brain. Oh, that, that was actually that that was actually incredible, mm-hmm. you know, um, because like you know this guy Yen Yen's he called him and he was a lovely man and uh, Yen's had basically two computer sockets, one behind each ear, and had these cables running up from his waist, um, about the thickness of your thumb, plugged into the the plugged into these computer sockets. And the other end around the waist was plugged into a computer. And then this computer was strapped to his waist, basically. And, you know, and then cables come out of that up to a pair, a pair of glasses that he had a camera on. So it was, it was specific stuff in a way, you know, and it was unreal. I, I, I found it really exciting and interesting in one way and in another way I felt a bit weird about it you know like when you're touching the back of a guy's head and he's got computer sockets mm-hmm. you know it's like some sort of robocop or something but um, anyway you know there, he, he was obviously connected up by something that was less than laser you know sort of electrical impulses on a circuit board beneath the skull the, the, the just underneath the skull and that was slightly piercing the brain these small electrical pins were 500 of them or something and they obviously communicated with that part of the brain and so the, the resolution was per you know something like 90 pixel or something like that and you think of your average phone now i don't know many pixels in your phone um you know what is it 1,200 or 12,000 or something like that. I, can't, I don't know what the pixel is on an average phone now, but this is 90 pixel. Like, so it was just literally black and white. 
shadows. So the good thing about it is it proved it could be done. Yes. Uh, but the sad thing about it was it really was nowhere near sufficient. And for somebody that desperately wanted their eyesight back, it didn't deliver. And I don't think it delivered for Ian's in my view. And I just felt leaving that day that I was very happy being the person that I am, mm -hmm. that I don't need to get my eyesight back, that I'm not looking to get my eyesight back. Yes, if God wants to give me a ring up today and suggest to me, Richard, maybe it's time to get your eyesight back, I would grab it with both hands, but I'm not going to pursue some kind of, a, go on some kind of crusade and cling to something. And um, so uh, your original question was, you know, what more has happened? And I genuinely don't know. I, I come back from that, and that was the end of the communication yeah. with me, really. And, uh, you know, sometimes I, I, I sometimes would be curious about following it up. But at the same time, you know, I'm 59 now. You know, it would need to be something extremely, extremely uh, zero risk and guaranteed a good level of success in terms of the outcomes as well as surviving any operation before yeah. I would even put myself through it. Yes, that's true. I know what you mean. Um, I just wanted to, to bring you back a bit to um, to growing up in in Craigan and Derry. Um, you know, it, it it's hard to imagine, you know, a 10-year-old when you're running around and you're seeing these outposts. You know, you're one of the people who remembers what, like you said, it was like before it was occupied. But even I can imagine that would maybe shape your personality to a certain extent. Um, you know, we would run around playing guns, you know, in, in our outside our houses, you know, it might be a very different scenario. Could you do everything you could do on occupied streets? Just how much of that um, embeds in your personality as you get older? I think it's there. You know, I don't think it's ever not there, Anthony. You know, I think that anybody that's come through the conflict will always have a memory, a feeling, you know, and hopefully it's not something that people find debilitating in terms of any impact that the trouble had on their, you know, their ability to function or any sort of mental or nervous disorder or anything. And I think there is a lot of people where the troubles did really impact on the mental scars has been quite significant. Um, you know, if you had a loved one killed, if you witnessed stuff, you know. Um, but, you know, when I grew up in the Craigan and played around the Craigan, you're right, you you might have played Cowboys and Indians down in Carlow. I played, we played IRA men and soldiers in the Craigan. Mm -hmm. You know, and we literally did. You know, uh, I can remember sitting in my brother's car outside our front house, at the front of our house, you know, and I'd be the driver. And two or three of my friends would be, you know, the, the, the other um, IRA men, let's say. And I'd be, you know, let the drive in the car and, say, you know, pretend they drive the car and send the guys, right, we're, we're, we're just driving down Broadway now, yeah. Right, we're coming down the Broadway, we're just going down Beachwood Avenue now. And we're going to pull in and then, you know, as I would break, they would jump out of the car, you know, all pretend and run around the back of my house and, and start shooting at the army and then come on back and jump on the car and we would speed off. And all our, that's an all in our imagination and all that. But 
that's the way it was. We used to stand and do checkpoints and stuff where IRA men wear masks, wear dark glasses and all that sort of stuff and do checkpoints and stuff where we were doing an IRA checkpoint because we saw IRA checkpoints in the area. Yeah. So, um, you know, but there was the prevalence of, you know, there was times when you were caught, uh, there were shooting incidents, you know, where you maybe had to dive into your own garden or get into your own house out of the road or lie down in the pavement. Mm-hmm. And that is very scary. And you never forget that, really. Yeah. And I know Craig in his end, it's the vocal point of that song, um, They Were Roses, isn't that right? Um, the old Irish song. And it's all about that as well. I don't know that song now, I have to admit. Oh, yeah. um, I'll, look it, I'll look it up after now. Yeah, but, it's a nice uh, song. Well, not, not that it's a nice song, it's well put together, but it is. Yeah. A, it, it's, it's about the troubles, but it's centred in on, on Craig. And, um, Jeepers, that's great. I must check that out. Yeah, there were roses. Cara Dillon, I believe, does a very good version. Cara Dillon, oh my God. Oh, she's yeah, I'll send you a link for it afterwards. Um, I do, surely. I do, I do know, um, you were talking about people who were affected, and I do know on... You know, that fateful day, it wasn't the only thing that happened that year. Like you said, Bloody Sunday um, was only three weeks apart, or three months apart, was it, from when yeah. you got shot? And I know that impacted home as well for another reason. I, I believe your your uncle lost his life on that. Yeah, that right? that's right. My uncle Jared, my mommy's brother, was shot dead on Bloody Sunday as well. And he was a, a father of eight children, you know. And, um, and uh, I can remember Bloody Sunday very well. Sorry, that's my computer talking. I, I can, I'll start that again. I can remember Bloody Sunday very well, you know. Um, like I, I could see then. <clears throat> and I was doing my usual out in the street playing football with my friends. And, uh, I, you know, I could see everybody all heading up to the march Sunday afternoon, maybe 2 o'clock or so. People starting to make their way up to Bishop's Field in the Craigan because that's where the march started up in the Craigan. And the plan was it would weave its way down through uh, up through the Craigan, down through the Bogside and Brandywell, and then try to make their way over to the Guildhall. And of course, as everybody knows, they were blocked from going over to the Guildhall. So they they walked over to Russell Street. And my uncle Jared was there, and uh, he, there were, I, I believe that he saw a man being shot, and he went out to help the man, and they had his arms in the air, and he was shot dead, you know. He had his arms in the air waving a white hanky. That's uh, eyewitness accounts. And funny, I was talking to um, a doctor afterwards. When I say afterwards, many, many, many years afterwards, like when I was an, when I was an adult. And Dr. Raymond McLean and Derry, who read a book called The Road to Bloody Sunday. And Dr. McLean was one of these unique people where he was involved in the civil rights movement. You know, so he was, he would have been, you know, aware of the march being planned and all that. He was also there on the day. And he was also, uh, I think, the Pope's envoy, or at least somebody's envoy. I could be wrong about the Pope, but, but he was there as a medical representative at the autopsies. And he wrote a, he wrote a book called The Road to Bloody Sunday. But when I was talking to him, you know, he was saying, look, you know, in the world of investigations, let's say, you know, the eyewitness accounts is tallied or compared with the forensic evidence. And the eyewitness accounts 
for the eyewitness account from my uncle Jared was that he walked out with his hands in the air waving a white hanky and he got shot. And um, originally, when the paramedics got there, they thought he had taken a heart attack. When you look at the forensics, the bullet entered my uncle Jared from the side underneath the armpit and came out the other side at the armpit. So the only way a bullet can enter you at the armpit is if your arms are in the air. Mm-hmm. And the paramedics, understandably, thought he'd taken a heart attack because they couldn't see the bullet wounds. Because once they shot him, his arms dropped. So, like, all that's very hard for people to hear, very hard for people to deal with. And it had a devastating effect on my mommy. And then less than three months later, I was blinded. I know your mother took that tough as well, didn't she? Like, not that she took it tough, but she, she had somewhat of a breakdown almost, didn't she? In that. Yeah, oh God, I, my mommy just completely flattened her really. And my mommy was found a couple of times walking in the middle of the road through a main street in Derry talking to herself. But, you know, it was never diagnosed, but when you hear the stories, you know that my mommy had a mental breakdown. And obviously my daddy and the family nursed her through it, really. And, you know, I can remember at night lying in my bed at me, and uh, I was only out of hospital, and my mommy would come up and kneel beside my bed. And, you know, the one thing my parents were was two very devout Catholics. They had great faith, went to Mass every day of their lives. And, you know, she went up and she was kneeling beside my bed and she thought I would have been sleeping. And She started to say her prayers. And then she broke down and started to cry and she'd be crying out of control, sobbing and pleading with God to give me back my eyesight. And, you know, um, you know, obviously I, I pretend to wake up and she'd kind of pull herself together. You know, um, so... The impact on my mommy and my daddy was enormous. You know, um, they had 12 children. I was the second youngest. So on, on above me, there was seven other boys and three girls. I one new brother that was younger. And, you know, you can imagine the sense of injustice that my brothers and sisters felt. You know, their uncle was shot down bloody Sunday. Their young brother was blinded. They were looking at the impact that it had on my daddy and my mommy. They were probably seeing their faces every single day. And then when I come out of hospital and I'm in the house and they're seeing what blindness actually means. Like one of my brother, my brother Gregory said to me one time that it never really registered with him that I was blind initially until he was looking out our back window and he saw me out in the backyard trying to kick a football. And although the football was about, you know, a couple of inches away from my foot, I kept missing it. And it was only then that he thought to himself, you know, Richard has actually blind. And, you know, for a whole family to witness that, and my mommy and daddy, do you have to deal with that, manage that, keep the lid on that, as well as deal with a real deep sense of hurt and pain that they had themselves. It must have been very difficult, you know. 
And it's only now when I have children of my own, Anthony. I have two daughters. And when they were born, like our niece, 31 now, and Anya's 28, you know. And, um, you know, when, when they come into the world, you know, I, the love that you feel for your children, the envelope that that opens in your heart, it's just something that you can never guess what it's like. And all you want to do is protect them every day of their lives. You don't want anybody to say anything wrong to them. You don't want anybody to hurt them. But you know, uh, my daddy, I'm sure, felt the same as me. And when we were children, and I remember when my daughter was 10 years of age. I remember when my daughter was 10 years of age. I remember um, thinking, you know, you're the age I was when I was blinded. And she was just a child, you know. And it just gives you the, it gave me a greater sense of where my daddy was at. Because like, or my mommy, you know, dared anybody hurt my daughter at 10 years of age. Like, and I would hit anybody to hurt her. And I would hit at that, at that young, innocent age. So I can, I can empathize and sympathize with how my parents really felt, but at the same time, I can also, I also admire their strength because despite all of that, I never heard him say an angry word. I never heard them promote any bitterness or hatred. In fact, they promoted the opposite. So to me, that just tells me the caliber of my parents. Yeah. I know, um, can I bring you back to when it actually happened? You know, do you have memory of the moment the bullet hit? Or Because um, I know you ended up going and meeting the soldier many years later. Um, but can you remember, you know, I often hear if, you know, people get into a car crash a few weeks afterwards, they can, you know, have a kind of a flash back of when it happens, you know, when they're lying in the bed. And did you have any of that? Or do you remember exactly when the bullet hit and were you knocked out unconscious? Yeah. Um, what I remember, Anthony, was, you know, you don't, it's a, I don't remember the shot, don't remember the bang, nothing like that. Um, I remember, I suppose the seconds before it really, you know, it's hard to be precise about that, but I remember approaching the Sanger on my right hand side. And then the next thing I remember as I woke up and I was lying on the school canteen table where my music teacher, Mr. Giles Doherty, he heard the bang. He ran up, he found me lying on the ground. He lifted me and carried me and put me on the school canteen table. So, and I remember him talking to me and saying to me, you know, what's your name, son? And I told him my name was Richard Moore. And he got a bit of a shock because he knew me very well, but he wasn't able to identify me because of the extent of injuries. And then um, I remember waking up in the ambulance 
and at that stage, my daddy and my sister were beside me. I only loved a few minutes walk from the school, so eventually the word filtered up to our house that Richard had been shot. And God knows, like my daddy didn't know what to expect when he ran down the hill to the, to the ambulance. You know, I don't know if he expected me to have a broken leg or a broken arm or whatever, and then he walks in and he sees this gruesome sight, really. And I remember my daddy was holding my hand and he kept saying, you'll be all right, Richard, you'll be okay. So that's as much as I remember about the incident itself. You know, um, you don't, you know, I don't remember hearing the bang or anything like that. Um, can you tell me the story of how you eventually came to find Soldier? Well, as you know, Anthony, I have to say I've never harbored any bitterness or any hatred towards a soldier, towards the British Army or anything like that. And, you know, I would boil that down to the fact that I come from a good family. I boil it down to the fact that, you know, my parents didn't have any anger or hatred, as I mentioned already. And then I also boil it down to the fact that um, the impact of blindness was reduced on me by the people around me, my family, my friends, the local community, and, and all of that. So blindness maybe wasn't as bad for me as it could have been. So I, I, um, I never really had any anger, any bitterness towards the soldier. And, you know, I grew up through my life not even thinking too much about anger, bitterness. And, and, um, and then eventually I began to see my story in the context of forgiveness. And I realized that I forgave the British soldier that shot me. And I began to become aware of, you know, this, this isn't a bad thing, that I'm a lot happier because I'm like this. So I got curious about the soldier. I wondered who he was. And then eventually, um, you mentioned the documentary earlier on, the people that made that documentary, Hotshot Films in Belfast, a guy called Brenton Byrne, they tracked down the soldier and uh, that was around, it was 2005 that they that I found out his name from them. And then in January 2006, I flew to Scotland and met Charles for the first time. And it was an amazing thing. You know, they sit at a table opposite the man that blinded me for life and caused all those hurts to me and my family. You know, and to like him was an incredible thing. And well, that was that was 2006, and this is now 2020. And me and Charles are good friends, and have remained good friends. Did Did he ever um, Did he ever tell you why he pulled the trigger? If you were to ask Charles that, he would say that first of all, and his view, rubber bullets didn't really cause any damage. And second of all that when he fired the rubber bullet, um, if he fired it to get the children to, quote, bugger off home, unquote. So that would be Charles's logic. Um, I, um, like, there's a lot of holes you pick in that. You have an argument with that in itself. 
you know, rubber bullet didn't cause damage. Like, you know, there's children have been killed by rubber bullets. You know, Stephen McConaughey and Derry was killed by a rubber bullet. Julie Livingstone in Belfast. And there's other people who have been badly injured by rubber bullets. You know, Emma Groves in Belfast was blinded by a rubber bullet. And, and I, the information's there and the evidence is there that proves that rubber bullets are lethal weapons and were lethal weapons. Um, and then around, you know, firing at, at a group of children, the, quote, bugger off home, unquote. Like, that's not what rubber bullets are meant for. You know, and... Now, I'm saying all that so that you or anybody listening to this knows, and I'm very aware of the fragility of Charles's arguments or points that he makes. But at the same time, I have a logic, a philosophy, let's say. And in my view, Charles acted carelessly. Charles acted recklessly. And there's no justification for firing a rubber ball in those circumstances. But I also think that in Northern Ireland, in the 70s, it was a crazy place to live. It was a crazy environment. And I think over the period, the 30-year period of the conflict, people done things in a normal society they would never have done. And I think we're lucky if we get through our life without doing something that we regret for the rest of our lives. And I think Charles done something that he regrets. I believe that. I don't believe that he meant to blame the 10-year-old boy, but I believe that he fired a rubber bullet recklessly. Um, so I think, the, I think the important part about my story, and I realize the story is a backdrop, I realize the story is, has shaped my life, the person I am, the work that I do, the life that I've had, has all been dictated by the fact that I've been shot and blinded by a rubber bullet. But at the same time, what's important about my story is not being shot itself. It's what happened from the moment I was shot. If you only focus on the shooting and the soldier, then it is the negative side of the story. But what happened from the moment I was shot? How was a 10-year-old boy able to bounce back and have the life that I've had? You know, if anybody listening to this is thinking anything positive or anything remarkable about my life, and I don't know if they are or not, and I can't suggest that they do, but if they are, that's the part of the story that they should start to think about and ask themselves, how is that possible? How is it possible? 
And it's possible because of the amount of love and compassion that I've experienced in my life. My family, my friends, the local community, they put me back together. I've been on the receiving end of so much kindness and so much generosity throughout my life. To the point where I was able to, like you said earlier on about me having a remarkable life, to the point that I was able to have a full life, an enjoyable life, a positive life, to the point where I didn't really miss my eyesight that much. No, to the point where I was able to have a full and active life and blindness was there, it always will be there, but it didn't stop me from being a happy, contented individual. And why was I able to forgive the soldier? Why did I not have any anger? Because of that love and compassion. Because of that example that my parents give me. Why did I set up a children's charity called Children in Crossfire? And I know that's how you started the interview, talking about the, the name Children in Crossfire. I started Children in Crossfire because all as I ever wanted to do was give back some of what I received. Because I realized that every child in life, no matter how difficult the circumstances, can grow and blossom and contribute in a positive way to their own life and the lives of their families and their community. I realized that as a young adult. So I set up Children in Crossfire to help children in other parts of the world who might, who might not have been in the crossfire of bombs and bullets, but were in the crossfire of poverty. They might not have bullets flying over their head, but they had decisions being made uh, throughout the world that were impacting on their lives and was equally as devastating as any bomb or bullet. Children are dying every day from lack of food, lack of medicine, lack of water. And you know, that's wrong, that's an injustice, and that's something that you and me can do something about. But why am I doing all that? If there's a child alive today in Tanzania and Ethiopia where children are crossfire work, it's not because of me. It's not even because of children in crossfire. It's because of those people in my life that showed me real love and compassion. That showed me that you can have a life. That showed me that you can get over something as terrible as losing your eyesight. And you don't have to be angry about it. You don't have to be bitter about it. There's different ways to deal with it that are beneficial to you and are beneficial to the people around you. So, um, that's why I say to you, the important part about my story is not being shot and blinded. It's what happened from the moment I was shot and blinded. That is far more interesting, far more exciting than being shot and blinded itself. I want to ask you, Richard, I don't know if um, you're a man of strong faith or anything, but there's a statement that, that some things happen for a reason. I know, um, I know. You know that fateful day when you when you were shot. It did turn out to be a turning point in your life, which 
you probably wouldn't have gone on to do to start chilling and crossfire if it, if if it, if it didn't happen. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. that things happen for a reason. I, I do know. I, I've heard you say before that you actually, funny enough, asked to be off school the day it happened. Is a coincidence. Um, what is your thoughts on that? I well, I mean, I can guess like everybody else. I suppose sometimes I can't help feeling that it happened for a reason. You know, I, you know, and then sometimes I think, you know, if God had a reason to do it, then would there not have been a better way to get me to do what I'm doing today? (laughs) But, uh, so, I, 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 I flip with the logic of it. Um, I, th- I think that maybe in some ways um, this is all meant to be. Yeah. Um, you, know, sometimes, you know, when I thought about that sort of most was when I, I met Charles. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, throughout my 33 years of my life of blindness, the first 33 years, I didn't know the soldier's name. Didn't know one thing about him, nothing. And I always imagined it was an 18-year-old soldier in an army lookout post on the edge of an old area, barely a child himself, basically, you know, Crapping himself. And when I found out his name, I found out when he shot me, he was a captain and he was in his 30s. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I remember thinking, God, you're really giving me a mountain to climb here, aren't you? I mean, it just couldn't be the romantic story or the innocent story that I had built up in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, it had to be an 18 karat gold, well-established, well-trained army captain that shot me. So that gave me a whole new challenge. It took away that sense of logic that I could have applied to that young soldier being nervous and an army lookout post when really it was a well-trained, well-disciplined army captain. So I sometimes think God was giving me, wasn't giving me any handy way out and forcing me to process and deal with, you know, blindness and being shot with no excuses that I could apply to give myself an easy way to sort of forgive. And... You know, so in that way, sometimes, in that way, I sometimes think maybe it was meant to be. Maybe there's a, you know, and then you know, I would sometimes I think you know when you think about it was meant to be, Anthony. You know, it's given me some kind of a status. You know that there was a greater plan for Richard. You know, you know, and and you know maybe not. So. In all honesty, I just don't know, but I do flip with it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I know that your your story alone has very positive impact, regardless of the actions you take with the children of Crawfire, even your story, I think, has um, has great impact. And, you know, I'm going back to the night where I first heard you speaking in Carlo, um, because I have a kind of a bizarre story that led me to to hearing you speak in Carlo. Um, uh, can you remember that night you were down in Carlo? You've probably been down there so many times now at this stage. Oh, I, I remember being in Carlo. Um, I was only ever there once speaking. Um, was it in a chapel? It was, yeah. I, I was only there once speaking in a chapel, so um, I remember it all right, you know. Um, yeah. Well, I, I remember, um, I'll give you a bit of context of how, you know, how, how impactful that was on me. Um, I was going through a bit of a, we'd say, kind of a, a spiritual warfare kind of thing, you know, in my own personal life. Um, since I was very young, I used to think I'd see see kind of shadowy kind of things, you know, at night. And it, it followed me right up till I was 27 even. Um, and it really had an impact on my, maybe my personality, but just my, I wasn't very religious at all. Um, I had no thoughts of it. I always believed maybe there was a God, but I didn't go to mass every weekend and my family didn't either, you know? Um, but I do remember that um, one night, you know, in a, I asked out in a prayer, I said, Jesus, I trust in you. And, it, you know, all the, the worry and anxiety it was causing went away. And whatever I believed I was seeing was gone. And this was the same week I met you. So what had happened was I, um, I'd spoke to my nana and I asked her for the, a, a Bible and a Jesus, I trust in you painting the portrait. And I hung it up and um, the next day I was on the way home from work and I got this, this top up into my head of that chapel that you were in in Carlo. And no, I didn't know you were there. I did, I'd never stepped foot in the chapel. And it, but it kept, I drove from Dublin, I work in Dublin, I was going back to Carlo and it kept popping up in my head over and over. So much so I had to turn the radio off. And um, regardless of that though, I still didn't go because I felt as though you know, um, I didn't know if anything was on or, you know, I thought it was a random thought. So anyway, I pulled up outside my home and a car pulled up beside me and it was to an elderly couple. And they says to me, um, do I know where this chapel is? And I said, yeah, it's just a kilometre down there on the left hand side. And they didn't say thank you. It was a very strange interaction. They just drove off or rolled off, you know. So anyway, I thought that was bizarre as well because I'd been thinking about this church. So I went in anyway, still didn't go, still fought the urge to go to the chapel. I went in and started cooking up a bit of dinner and I still remember I was throwing a chicken stir fry on for myself, you know. <laughs> I decided, I said to myself, um, you know what, I, I just look up the name of this chapel on my phone. And I did. And um, a link popped up that I'd never seen before not that I Googled many churches at the time, but it was a live feed to the chapel. And as I hit onto it, the priest was was talking to everybody at the very start and he said, just so happened it was about it was seven o'clock or whatever it was and mass was starting, he said, If we have a very special night for you tonight, and if anyone is at home who thinks they should be here, you should come on down. And um 
I turned off the hob at that. And I said, right, enough is enough. I, you know, I'm going to go down there and see what the, what the story is. But as I approached the church, I got in the car, went down. I could see the, the queues of cars. You couldn't park anywhere. But there was one space outside the church. And this is true as God. Now, I walked up and I seen people were spilled outside the church. Couldn't even get inside. And a man took me, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, there's one space for you inside, son. And he opened the door for me. And as I walked in, still not knowing why I was there or how I got there, another man came over to me and handed me the leaflet of the night, the mass, and pointed me. And there was people all standing on the inside of the, the chapel with no seats. And he pointed me over to one seat left. And uh, I couldn't understand how this seat was empty. So I said it anyway. And uh, that was the night that you got up and you spoke. And I couldn't see you from where I was. There was big gray pillars. But then you, t- you said you were blinded. And um, the story you-, you told about how difficult, how the difficult circumstance in your life, you-, you made such a strong meaning from that. So what, what you had gone through, you had turned your life around to help others. And now that was your new meaning in your life. And that's what you were doing with children and Crossfire. And um, it really kind of landed home with me. You know, um, I used to have, I used to have a dreams where I was in a, in a big crowded area and a bomb would go off or a riot would take out and I'd be blinded. And this dream, I had this dream for 20 years and someone would have to grab me by the hand and lead me away to safety. But, when I listened to your story and what, well, what was happening to me that week, I kind of had a new focus on my life almost, you know, like, like I knew it impacted my mental health very positively. Mm. When I walked out of that chapel door, I, um, I couldn't just drive home. Then I, I did hang around. I, I went up to you and I didn't even know what to say to you. And I just said, look, I just happened by mass tonight. Um, I heard your story. And from whatever words I could piece together, I said that, you know, I, I was trying to say I appreciated your story. I appreciated mm, that yeah. it felt as though this was another thing that happened. Like I said, uh, things happen for a reason. You know, I was meant to be down in that church and the first sign wasn't bringing me there. The second sign wasn't bringing me there. I was given multiple signs and even for the people welcoming me in the front door and I heard your message. And I don't know if I'd be doing this podcast if it wasn't for your story that night. And if, if this podcast goes down next week and no one listens to my podcast anymore and I have to pull the plug, I, I am happy that I got a chance to have you on it um, and for to pe- other people to hear your story and that maybe they might get such a positive impact that I got from that night. That's very good. Well, thank you for that. Anthony, you know, and... Um... It's lovely to hear that story from me because, you know, I remember one time I was going to speak in a chapel in Oma and uh, uh, Ursa, the person you spoke to that linked us up in the office here, uh, Ursa was driving me to Oma that night and I was saying there, you know, maybe it's time for me to stop telling my story. You know, and I, I can always pride myself in thinking that that I, I I know when to stop things or you know that I'm not doing it for me mm-hmm. and um, so that 
night going up the road, I was going, you know, maybe it's time for me to stop telling my story. Maybe, you know, people have heard enough of me, really. And, and they heard enough of my story. And I wasn't being modest. I'm giving you, I'm sharing a kind of a, an innermost thought, in a sense, with you. It's not something, you know, that I'm saying to you for any other reason than that. And, um, or says to me, well, look, um, you know, see how you feel, look, you're up tonight anyway, and, and, and that sort of thing. So I went up and I done the talk, and there was something quite remarkable happened to me that night as well up there, because um, the person that introduced me onto the altar that night was a young girl called Davine Monaghan. And it was only after I gave my talk that I discovered Davine's mommy and her granny and a sibling and an unborn sibling as well were killed in the Oma bomb. And she was 10 years of age when that happened. And that night she was 18 years of age. And um, the next day the teacher rang me to say that, uh, you know, that Avine got a lot out of the talk or something like that. And I, I suppose I felt my question was being answered. And when you say to me now what you've just shared with me now, then sometimes I think, you know what? It's really, really worth it when somebody like you, like I don't know, it's maybe four or five years now since Carlo, if, if not longer, something I can't no track of time really, but it's been a few years anyway and there you are doing a podcast here today, which is down to you and nobody else. But it's nice to think that that you remembered me first of all, and second of all, that you know that you feel that I had a part to play in it, because that makes it worthwhile. Ultimately, why am I doing this? Why are you doing this, Anthony? Why are you doing a podcast? Why am I talking and sharing my story? Because if I'm just sharing my story just for me to talk about myself, then to be honest, we have lost any sense of direction or whatever. But I know that and I share my story because I more and more believe that it's through stories that you help people deal with what's going on in their life. And I'll tell you the um, story that I heard once. I don't know if I'm, I'm going on about much here, but I'll, I'll tell you a story that I heard once and then sure. Uh, you can tell me to shut up then. But no, work away. Um, and I don't know if you know anything about guitars or stringed instruments, but if you have two acoustic guitars in a room, one sitting at one side of the room and the other sitting at the other side of the room, and you pluck say, the, the A string on the guitar, on one guitar. The A string and the other guitar vibrates. And that's true. I heard that story and I tested it because of a guitar player. When you pluck the A string on one of the guitars, the guitar, the A string and the other guitar vibrates. And the reason why that person was telling that story that I heard was because they were saying the human heart's the same. 
And when you share your story or your experience, then it responds, the person listening responds from the heart as well. Mm-hmm. And like you telling your story there now, Big Linda Chapel, you know, it's, it's a fantastic story. I'd rather, I know if you realise that. And just the whole thing from driving from Dublin and the sort of signals you were getting. Yeah, I haven't, told, I haven't told that story much. And I guess... Um, this podcast probably to me is, is this episode is a long time in the making because, because of the, um, the impact your story has on, on, on me doing it. And, um, and I get, I get what you're saying with the, you know, I, I play acoustic myself and my brother. Oh, there you are. And, uh, but I never do that about the A string and that's great. I mean, it, must well, have- it could be any of the strings. I just choose yeah. the A string because yeah, yeah. I, always, I always be afraid to choose the G string. <laughs> <laughs> and that means something different <laughs> you know I think it's I do think that your story is important and I'm really glad you continue to share it because you know you never know when there's there's someone else sitting in the back aisle of the yeah. chat to be there and you know I do I think I have shared a story with one or two of my closer friends I've yeah. never shared it on the podcast but it, I do think you know I was, how I found myself, I remember sitting in that church pew thinking, how did I get here today? You know, it was more or less pulled there. Um, And it's the strangest, most bizarre night, but I got so much out of it. And I do credit you for um, influencing me to do this. And, and, you know, when I say this podcast, you know, it's called Training Thought and Truth. And really it's, um, it's like a physical, mental and spiritual health thing. And I, that's why I, I like guests to come on and tell their story because I think, like you said about this shrinks intertwining and relating with people, I think that some guests can relate to people. And when I see people listening in different parts of the world, you know, I'm thinking, I hope they get something. I, I said a prayer last night. I said, I hope this podcast goes well. I hope Richard enjoys the chat. And I hope somebody, I hope it reaches someone the way it reached me, the same story. Because um, even if it reached one person, you know, even if that story in Carla only reached me, and then maybe the echo effect from today's podcast might reach somebody else. And um, I, I really think that's why a lot of things, when I say they happen for a reason, like, you know, I was, since that week, I've been guided in certain directions. Um, and that was this, the beginning of it. And uh, I want to say that I'm, very honoured that you've come on and tell your story today. Are you? Are you? Actually, oh, thank are you, you. Are you playing much guitar lately? Hi, I play a bit. Well, you know, we just I have a recording set up at home, and um, you know, we recording studios now are all on a computer. You know, so I have a recording set up at home, and uh, I, you know, have my guitars all hanging on the wall there, and uh, you know, so I, I I I try to create my own music. You know. Uh, fairly middle of the road sort of stuff. I don't write songs, uh, lyrics. I, I love to be able to write lyrics. I'm really trying to do that. But I haven't been successful, but I haven't had the confidence or whatever. But writing tunes, I do it all the time. And uh, so, uh, and that, and then I, I, I give up playing with the band years ago when I started Children Across Fire back in 96. But I, I still play in the folk group and stuff like that there. And obviously we're off for a few months now that lockdown and all that's been happening. But, We'll get back on that, but to keep me hand on, I, I record at home quite a quite a bit, you know, um, 
and I love that creative side too. You know, where you're starting with the drum kits and the bass guitar and the keyboards and you know the, the guitar and the lead guitar and several guitars and over overlaying guitars and stuff. I do all that, you know, and enjoy all that experiment and you know what we sound. So yeah. I, I I kind of um, keep my hand on that way. In fact, my guitar is just sitting opposite me there uh, yeah. because I'm teaching a friend of mine in the office here. One of the girls that work in the office, I'm teaching her the guitar. Oh, very good. During lockdown, she decided to learn the guitar. So, well, where where can we where can we hear some of your own stuff? Are you are you, are you posting it? Up uh, there at all, are you? Not, not yet. Not but yet. I, I'll send you a copy. I'll, uh, I'll it's only instrumentals, you know, uh, one or two instrumentals. And uh, you know, in fact, I don't know if first I said that I'm doing my own podcast. That's right. What um, about you? Is that right? Yeah. What about you? That's right. And again, that's about personal stories, I suppose. And uh, well, you know, when I, I, I've come across many interesting people in my life and, you know, it's very interesting even you interviewing me because I'm seeing it from both sides and and uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. But um, I, uh, I, you know, um, what was I trying to say now? I've lost a thread of my thought now. What were we talking about there? I, um, I, I, I created my own piece of music as a theme tune. Okay. for the podcast um and again that was a that was a project you know first of all just to just to create the piece of music from from scratch and then um you know uh and then you know get under the podcast then separately so uh you know i kind of was um i'm very interested in radio i have a radio station up here in Derry. uh uh, called Drive 105, which is a community radio station, you know, one of these community radio stations. And um, so I'm very interested in radio, I'm very interested in music, very interested in recording and editing and all that. But it took a fair a wee bit of courage to get into the interviewing bit mm-hmm. and sitting down with people and chatting to them. I don't know about you, but I'd be nervous when I go on to chat to somebody. And, uh, so I've I, I done every stalling exercise. I wanted to do this. But I thought, right, I'll create my own music first. So that took me about three months to sort of create my own piece of music. But when all of that was done and the platforms were set up and the only thing left was, Richard, you need to start interviewing people, uh, then uh, that's when I really had to sort of go for it. So, But I have a couple now under my belt and uh, I don't know about you, but I just get so much out of it myself. You know, chatting to people and yeah, well, and, like like this now. I was I don't get nervous of all my talk guests. I did get nervous today because this was an important one for me. Um, all right, and like like the first one I got, you know, I, I um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's the same like that. Um, but so I how do, long are you doing it, Danny? I'm I'm doing it since um the year before last, so uh, twenty nineteen around around June. Now I've only it's just thirty second episode. A lot of people would say that's that's very little for how long I'm doing it. But I would rather put out um, the the quality rather than the quantity. You know, um, I sometimes it might take me two months before I get another guest lined up. But I'd rather um, I'd rather get the right guest. You know, and I'd rather um, just just I know when people see another episode popping up that you know that I put a bit of thought into it. You know, um, yeah. And, and what, what, what do you say? It's 30 second? Uh, 30 second. This is episode 32, yeah. 
All oh, right, I think it says 30 second episodes, like it was 30 seconds long. I was thinking, my God, <laughs> no. nobody edit this thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, and I love the, the music. And as well, I do the editing, I do all the rest. And I, yeah, I, 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 you know, love to hear about you're getting into the music side of things as well, because it's, it's, so, it's such a creative thing, isn't it? You know, um, it's one of those things that gives you this feeling. Like I've often had people on. I, I'd be a big believer now. Ever since, ever since that week, uh, four years ago. Um, but um, my faith has got very strong. And you know, I've um, I've even gone to the. I've gone to Israel last year. I got a gift uh, for my thirtieth to go, um, uh, off my partner, and she went with me. And um, I've since then had a few people come on the podcast who were atheists and kind of challenged me over it. But I was digging into the historicity of the, the man of Christ and, and uh, I wanted to know every angle of it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it just built my faith and built it. And a big part of this, that's why it's trained thought and truth. I guess the truth is I am the truth. I am the way, the light and the truth. Um, and I just think that uh, taking, you know, it's one of the arguments I put, you know, music gives you that type of feeling that's not tangible. It's not scientific. You know, it can raise the hair on the back of your neck and inspire you um, and if you can kind of pull hopefully you can share that feeling on through the stories and I know you, you telling your story has such an impact and that's why I wanted to give you my little story to, to add yeah, to your story. I loved it yeah no but I loved it I really did and uh, you know I loved hearing the story about your journey and I was just thinking god how many many signals did you need you know like it's like, yeah, like, you know, there's probably, probably more, you know, and the, and the bizarre, like, that I still remember, like, it was yesterday that my, I had to turn the radio off. This, you know, it's an hour long journey. <laughs> it was an hour and a half because of traffic pulling up. The, the car, what? the minute I stopped in my car and got out, this car pulled up beside me. And the most bizarre people <laughs> you know, they just drove off. And it was like they're saying, do you know where the church is? Because we do. We're going there. <laughs> I know. It's like I mean, the, the switching the radio off just wasn't going to work. <laughs> I know. And, and the webcam, when I hit that, I'd never seen a webcam in the church before. I still have it. My God. Hey, uh, do you know, I, I actually blame you then for me having to go the whole way to Carlo. <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, you don't realize i got a phone call they say look there's this guy carlo we're trying to get him on the mass <laughs> you're wondering why the radio didn't work all the way down <laughs> oh, that's brilliant but look, that's great. Tell me, i know that this covid has put a stop to a lot of events and fundraisers and all that do you have anything big coming up uh, this side of the year yes we do i mean well, we've been doing a lot of stuff online fundraising like um virtual walks and virtual caminos walk um 100 mile in September and stuff like that there. We're actually doing a, an ab sale um, on the 29th of November down the side of the Tower Museum. I'm not, well, they still want, they want me to do it and I'm still sort of, sort of um, playing around with the idea of doing it, but we'll see. And, uh, and, and then we'll do a fast on the, from the, on the 23rd of December through the 24th of December, just a 12 hour, 24 hour fast. They haven't decided yet. The fund, I don't want to say they, I mean the fundraising team on here. And um, and then, you know, so so there's a lot going We have our Advent campaign, which basically starts really now at the end of November, you know, where we, um, you know, particularly the chapels in the Dairy Diocese or, you know, um, let us distribute our Advent boxes out through the chapels and stuff. And, you know, to be fair, 
the Catholic Diocese in Derry have been extremely supportive of Children Crossfire for many years through the Advent campaign and then we have you know, people supporting us during Advent and stuff like that as well. And it's very important for us. It's a difficult time, mm-hmm. you know, for charities. Our, our complete fundraising sort of plan has, has, had, has been flatlined and had to be changed and adopted. Um, again, thanks to the team and the support base we have, we, we you know we've we've held our own for the last you know five or six months. Um, but you know we have the full year to go, and uh, you know and hopefully things will start to improve. Anthony, you know that we can get back to normality in terms of what the charity does. But I, I always like to go out to the projects as well, and I can't go out to Africa at all. So. Um, I'm really dying to get out there to see how things are going, you know, but that's that's just the way it is. And, you know, um, and it's funny, um, about maybe five weeks ago, now six weeks ago, I got an email from a guy in Ethiopia that would kind of um, work with children across fire out there. And there's a community there that we supported for 10 years, you know, a community that was living in a graveyard. There was 260 people who lived in a graveyard, really, in, in the centre of Addis Ababa. And, uh, you know, we eventually, you know, were all, you know, the people were suffering from hunger, malnutrition, or lack of food, malnutrition, waterborne diseases. Children were living the most terrific lifestyle, really. They loved and slept on top of graves. Their toilet was a graveyard. They basically were involved in child prostitution and different things on the streets of Addis Ababa to earn money to try and feed themselves. And um, at, at the time, we got involved in it and, uh, and we eventually um, moved all 260 people, 60 families out in the condos that we bought, you know, which is one room sort of apartments, basically. And, uh, and they were dry, they were warm, they were, you know, had electricity, they had outdoor toilets, but they were proper outdoor toilets, you know, latrines, pit latrines and stuff. And um, they, we were the feeding program. We'd done the feeding program for about 10 years. And then eventually we phased out the feeding program because they began to, you know, we developed these income generating skills that they, that they needed, you know, which was, um, you know, like b- soap making, candle making, broom making and stuff like that there and you know they were starting to sell their products in the local market and about 16 of the young people back in 2008 two years ago had gone to university the third level education so it just shows you the potential but five or six weeks ago I was contacted by Gabriel Miguel who's a guy out there that kind of works for children crossfire he said that because of COVID the markets were all closed. Tanzania was in lockdown. And that whole community was facing starvation, really. So, you know, it just shows you, like, you know, how COVID can basically, you know, we can see the impact of it here, but the additional impact in countries like Ethiopia or Tanzania is that um, people are forced into poverty and and you know this whole as i say these people had no income whatsoever and they were facing starvation so luck had it that we were in a position to um support a program so 
we've taken on the come up and now to feed that community again for at least a, a, a year. I told them they, that's, that's budgeted for a year because we don't know how long this is going to go on for. And, you know, it's easier to sort of say halfway through the year that they don't need the money anymore or they don't need the support anymore than it is to try and find the money again. So if we can factor it in, budget for it, it, it makes more sense from my point of view. So, but, you know, it just shows you, you know, how COVID can be, you know, enormously uh, detrimental to communities. You know, the things maybe you never think about, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and you wouldn't, you know, you think about how it, we, we ought to much think about how it affects us directly, but, you, you know, we don't think about the charities that are affected and what's the end result for that and all. That's uh, right, you know. But luck has it, you know, our supporters have continued to support us and things like that, you know, so yeah. uh, but we have a lot to be grateful for. And it's not us really, but it's just, I get a great sense of relief when you're able to respond to something like that. Like I know that community very well. I've been out in the graveyard when they were there and I've been, you know, I've been, you know, out visiting them every so often and, you know, and it's just great to see them progressing, stand on their own two feet, you know, and we just have to keep working at that so that eventually if it COVID does hit and another five, ten, hopefully never, but you know, another issue that they're more resilient, that they can they don't need us to step in and that's what you're always heading towards, you know. And we will get there with that, but um everything takes time, you know, uh you know, and, and resources. So but there we are. Yeah. Very good. And tell me, um, I just want to ask you if you had any words for someone, maybe someone who's listening, who believes that like maybe the odds are stacked against them, they're a bit down themselves, you know, they're, um, any parting words that they might um, get benefit from hearing from you? Well, I, I would always say to somebody that, you know, um, if my story is an example of anything, it's an example of how, no matter how difficult, no matter how hopeless a situation might seem, there is always a way out. There is always, we all possess the ability to navigate ourselves out of that. And the one thing that I learned about blindness is, I need people. I can't go anywhere without people. And I love that. I embrace that. And I embrace blindness. So never be afraid to ask for help. And never be afraid to accept help. To me, when you ask for help, it's a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. And, you know, sometimes you have to look at the things that are maybe making you feel the way you feel, the way you feel and stuff like that. And everybody's different. All situations are different. But I just think that if you can be confident, and you can be confident, that no matter how bad it is, 
there is always a way that you'll deal with it. If you're open to talking to people, asking for help, and receiving help. Um, and that's a story of my life. That's a story of every day of my life. So whatever people might think out there that listen to this show and think I'm confident and Mr. All Together and, you know, I've got it all. You know, I get, I receive help every day in my life. And I love it. I love it. Because what blindness gives me is the opportunity to see people in a different way. And I think when you can embrace something and try to look for the positives in it, then, you know, I think, uh, you know, it, you'll, you'll see them. You'll see the positives. So that's as much as I can say, really, on that, you know, other than some of the stuff already said, you know. Has your, has your faith been a big influence on in your life, Richard? Has it had much? I, I think, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't, wear me faith on my sleeve, let's say. I don't preach or anything like that. Maybe I do and I don't realise it, but um, I think that certainly God played his part in my life without a question. It is too... There's, look, I can talk to you about family and the support that they give me. I can talk about friends and the support that they give me. But there was something else something else, a spirit in me that, that I believe is a God-given spirit that helped me deal with the thing that I've dealt with. And I think that we all get signals in our life. We all get direction in our life. And sometimes we see it and we ignore it. And sometimes we see it and we follow it. And um, it's been open to seeing it. And in your story, God had an uphill struggle trying to get you to follow the signs. But it got you there in the end up, and you were open to it. And, uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, we all look for happiness in life. You know, everybody, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. You know? And sometimes we look in the wrong places for happiness. You know, and if you think of the things that make you happy, you know, when you talk about, for example, helping people, you talk about children who cross fire and the work we're doing, it makes me happy when I see that we can help somebody. It makes me happy when you tell me that my story helped you. And if you think of, if you help somebody across the road, if you deliver your groceries, groceries to somebody's house, if you do a kind act, think about how you feel. You feel happy. So I always think, you know, if you're looking for happiness, that's where it is. It's in, thing, it's in the, the kind and generous things that you do yourself. And you can find happiness by doing that. And contentment. And purpose. 
and I, I and it doesn't have to be setting up a charity. You know, sometimes the smallest of things make you happy when you do a kind thing for somebody. So you don't have to go very far. You don't have to buy a big car. You don't need three holidays. You don't need a massive house. I'm not saying those things aren't great to have if you can afford them. I'm just saying you don't need those things to be happy. I think, it, you know, a very. Uh, I think it's true what you said about, you know, um, the, seeing the door being open um, and the way you said about this, you know, the, you feel the, the spirit that helped you through it. I think that's the same thing that was working with me that led me to that church. And I think it's the same thing I feel when I'm doing these episodes, you know. Um, I resonate with that an awful lot. And look, I really appreciate your time, Richard. Um, it's been, all, I enjoyed the chat, Anthony. Thank you. It's, it's been my, it's been Great. an honour to have you on. Um, because, like I said, it's, it's probably a long time making for me, unknowns to yourself. <laughs> but, um, well, <laughs> it's here now. And uh, no, I'm really delighted and privileged that I had a small party play and, yeah. and whatever positive things happen in your life. It's just lovely for me to hear that. And thank you for sharing it. Yeah, well, I hope, well, if anything, I hope um, it shows you that your your message is still very strong and relevant. Um, and I hope you continue with it. And I hope uh, it, it reaches someone through this medium now as well. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Anthony. Listen, thanks very much, Richard. And I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. On May 4th, 1972, while playing on a soccer field, a 10-year-old boy was struck by the rubber bullet of a British soldier in the town of Derry, Northern Ireland. This shot caused lifelong blindness, which changed the life of Richard Moore forever. Troubles in Northern Ireland. The events of Bloody Sunday would come to define the conflict for many and leave a lasting legacy of bitterness and injustice. Thank you.